Turn with me to Luke chapter 2. Many of you may be familiar with the passage that we're going to read this evening. Luke chapter 2 happens to be part of the birth narrative about Jesus. And my family had a tradition every Christmas morning when we would wake up, before we would open gifts, we would read the account of the birth of Jesus to be reminded that Christmas is not just about the gifts and the cookies and the family. Ultimately, Christmas is about the birth of Jesus. And I I think maybe for a lot of us, we've become conditioned to thinking mostly about the birth of Jesus around Christmas. But I've been reading through Luke a lot lately, and I've been teaching our students through the book of Luke. And at the beginning of Luke, here in chapter 2, we come to the birth narrative of Jesus. And and we have to be reminded that this is not just a a story for us around Christmas time, around the holidays, but this is the Word of God. And so tonight, I don't want us to focus so much on uh, all the holiday things that we associate with the birth of Jesus. What I want us to look at tonight is the character of God in the birth of his son. The character of God in the birth of his son. We're going to look at the first seven verses of Luke chapter 2. Follow along with me as I read those. In those days... A decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went up to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there... The time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Lord Jesus, this is the word of God. I pray that it would instruct us this evening and that we would see just a glimpse into who you are as we look at the birth of your son, Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So there are three things that I want us to see about the character of God in the birth of his son. The first is the perfect timing of God. The perfect timing of God. The second is the complete control of God. The complete control of God. And the third is the overwhelming humility of God. The overwhelming humility of God. But the first thing is the perfect timing of God. Verse 1 begins with the words, in those days. Now, Luke is writing to a certain, or, or in a certain time period, and his readers would probably be more familiar with the, 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 those days, what was happening in those days. And I'm not at all a historical scholar by any means, but some, some study Bibles are very helpful when it comes to these types of things. But in these days, we have to remember that this is the beginning of the life of Jesus. And between the Old Testament and the New Testament, most of us are probably aware that there's around a 400-year period of silence where God was not sending prophets. They were not having uh, you know, books of the Bible as we know it in the Old Testament brought to the people of Israel so they were hearing from God. It was a silent time. 
And so surely, uh, people probably were starting to think or, or get the idea that maybe God had forgotten about his people. But also, during this time, during this quiet time when God is not speaking through prophets, Rome, as an empire, was growing. And Rome had continued to grow to the point where they were now dominating Israel. And Caesar Augustus, this guy that we read about here, was a huge emperor in the Roman Empire. And he, he did some really great things. Many of you may have heard in, in school the term Pax Romana. It was this term of peace or this time of peace during the Roman Empire that came about under Caesar Augustus's rule. There was peace from, from a lot of the wars against their enemies. He created official road system throughout the empire, which made traveling a little easier. And so he did a lot of great things. But now he is taking control over Israel. And even Jerusalem, he has set Herod the king as the one who is in charge over Jerusalem. And so the Israelites are being taken over by the Roman Empire. So surely this is a dark time for Israelites. But 400 years of silence from God reminded me of something else. It reminded me of way back in the book of Exodus where God's people, the Israelites, had become slaves in Egypt. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 40, it says that there was approximately 400 years of slavery. Or the Israelites were in Egypt for approximately 400 years. And so if we think about being anywhere for 400 years, that spans multiple generations. Think about Israelites who were born after slavery had begun. Maybe shortly after, maybe 10 years in, 20 years in, 30 years in. They're not living through that whole 400-year period. They are going to die while the Israelites are still slaves in Egypt. And this is going on for generations. And so surely the Israelites are beginning to think God has to have forgotten about us. He has to have abandoned us. But I want you to look back with me to Exodus chapter 3. And in Exodus chapter 3, we see an interesting, an interesting paragraph. It's the very last paragraph of the chapter, verses 23 and 24. It says, During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob, and God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. So 400 years that the Israelites are slaves in Egypt, 400 years where it seems like God has forgotten about them, God is not acting to help them or to free them, and they're crying out to God. And God heard. And God knew. And then in chapter 3, we read about Moses. And God coming to Moses in the burning bush and telling Moses how he is going to go before Pharaoh and let his people go. But what I want you all to see is that God does not do things on our time. God does not do things when we want him to do things. God has his own way and his own timing in which he will act in human history. 
You see, for all of us, if we had been the people in, in Egypt, Israelites in Egypt who were enslaved for year after year after year, and we're not seeing relief year after year after year, we would tend to think God has forgotten about us. God's not going to do anything. He must have left. He, maybe he picked another people. But he has abandoned us. And perhaps the Israelites were feeling a similar feeling after 400 years of having no prophet, not, not having heard from God in a long time. The Romans are now taking over our territory and they are, are controlling us. We are now under their government. Surely that seemed like a dark, Time. But in chapter 2, verse 1, Luke says, In those days, when it was bad, when it was getting like God had forgotten his people, when it seemed as all hope was lost, God sends his son. You see, God's timing is not like our timing. God does not respond based on what we think he should do or when we think he should act. See, but God's timing is perfect because he sent his son at such the right time. Paul says in Galatians chapter 4 that it was at the right time that Jesus was born. That at the right time, God sent his son to be born of a woman. Y'all, God knows when the time is right. God knows when he will do what he'll do. We don't. But one of the things that, that Luke is wanting to impress upon us is that at just the right time, God is going to do what he says he will do. The Old Testament is littered with promises that God is going, or reminders that God is going to keep his promises over and over and over again. When it seems like maybe all hope is lost and that he's, he's neglected his people, he's forgotten his people, God comes through. God delivers, and the Bible reminds us that God kept his promise. And God had made a promise all throughout the Old Testament that he was going to send a Savior. And after 400 years of silence, when perhaps the Israelites are downcast, every reason in the world to be sad, to be upset, that's when God sends his son. That is when God decides to begin the work of raising up his son, who will ultimately be the savior. But I wonder if, if you and I know tonight, and if we have experienced in our life that God's timing is perfect. My wife is sitting in the back, and she has a brother who is not a believer, He's not a Christian, hasn't been his whole life. He's, there's never been a period of his, of his life where he has acted like or looked like or, or professed to be a believer. And, and we pray for him, that he would believe, that he would know Jesus, that he would trust in Jesus. And it hasn't yet happened. And for you and for me, we all have stories like that. We all, if we were, were sharing tonight, every single one of us would have a story where we think, why, why won't you do this, God? Saving someone is a good thing. Why won't you do it? If we pray and ask over and over and over again, why won't you do it? 
we need to be reminded that God doesn't do things on our time. God does things on his time. And he will do it when the time is right, when the time is perfect. One, I want you to see that the, the perfect timing of God, but two, I want you to see the complete control of God. The perfect timing of God and the complete control of God. Look with me again at verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. And he went to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. God is in complete control of all things. Now, think about Caesar Augustus being perhaps one of the most powerful men in the ancient world at this time. He is the emperor of Rome. Rome is huge. Even if we are not history majors, you all have heard of the empire of Rome because it was massive and it spanned a long time and they had great power. And so Caesar Augustus is the man on top of the pyramid. He's the man in charge. He is a powerful, powerful, powerful man. But if, as we read earlier in Luke's account, the angel comes to Mary in Galilee. And he tells Mary that she's going to have a child. And this child is going to be the son of God. He's going to be holy. But Mary is in Galilee. Look back with me to the book of Micah, one of the minor prophets. After Jonah. Micah chapter 5. Look with me at verse 2. It says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. The prophet Micah is prophesying that the Messiah is going to come from Bethlehem. Not Galilee. Not Nazareth. From Bethlehem. So is it a random coincidence that at this time, in these days, the, the, the most powerful man in the ancient world, Caesar Augustus, declares that there's going to be a decree that all people need to go back to their home city, their home place, and register for the purpose of being taxed? Is that just random coincidence? Or is God orchestrating all things and showing his control over all human powers to accomplish his purpose? Proverbs chapter 21 verse 1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. God is orchestrating all things under his complete control to fulfill his purposes. God's timing is perfect. 
Jesus is showing up right when he is meant to show up. God's control is perfect. God is using the authorities in the ancient world at the time to make everything happen exactly the way that he said it would happen. God is in complete control. But look, look further down as well. Look at verses 6 and 7. And while they were there, the time came for Mary to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Not only did God tell Caesar Augustus or control Caesar Augustus to make this decree at such the right time, but also it just so happened to be that while Mary was with Joseph in Bethlehem, the time came for her to give birth. Again, we see the timing of God is perfect and the control of God is perfect. But the objection that always comes up when you talk about God being in control or God controlling all things is, why do bad things happen to good people? If God is in control, then why would he allow bad things to happen to good people? Look again Starting in verse 3. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. So Nazareth and Bethlehem are not close. If you were to open up to the back of your Bible, if you have maps, and you were to find those two places on the map, Nazareth is way up to the north, and Bethlehem is way south. It's, it's south of Jerusalem. It's approximately an 80-mile trip. Now, if we were to hop in our car and make an 80-mile journey, that alone is going to take us more than an hour, depending on what speed you're going. They didn't have cars back then. They're walking. And being good Jewish people who really dislike the Samaritans, Samaria is right in the middle, so they're going to have to go around and go the long way because they're not stepping foot in Samaria and mixing with the Samaritans. It's just not going to happen. So chances are they probably traveled 80 to 90 miles to go from Nazareth to Bethlehem. They would have been walking by foot. Mary is incredibly pregnant at this point. This probably would have been five to seven days of walking for about eight hours a day. Talk about a major inconvenience. This was not just, all right, hey, we got to go to Bethlehem, hop in the car, let's go. Make sure you got all the, you know, all the stuff you need for the baby since it's getting, getting, time's getting close. No, this was a major ordeal to pick up, to leave home, and to go to Bethlehem. At the time... You know, from us looking in, we might think, why would God do that? Why would God allow them to be uprooted from their home, from where they are, from where they're comfortable, especially as Mary is drawing near to having a baby, and to travel such a long way simply so they can be registered, so, they know, so Caesar knows that they're paying taxes? Seems crazy. Seems like, is God in control? Would God allow such a thing to happen? But what about back in the book of Genesis? 
There's a story that maybe we're familiar with, the story of Joseph. Y'all remember Joseph was the youngest of 12 brothers, and he was not liked by his brothers because he was the favorite. And dad, Jacob, gave him that special coat. And his brothers were, were plotting and scheming on how to get rid of him, and so they decided, well, we'll throw him in a pit and we'll kill him. And then they decided, no, let's not do that. Why don't we sell him to this caravan that's coming by, and we can actually make some money and get rid of him in the process. It's, it's a win-win. And so they do. And Joseph is sold by his brothers. And he goes to Egypt, and he, he gets put in the house of Potiphar, and he's serving Potiphar faithfully. And Potiphar's wife is wanting to be immoral with him, and he's refusing. And so she blames him. And anyway, long story short, he gets put in prison. And from every possible circumstance, from every angle that we would look at that, we would say, why would God allow all of that to happen to such a good, faithful, upright man? But then Joseph tells us, in Genesis 50, verse 20, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. So I'm not here to say that I have an answer for every question that you've ever had of why do bad things happen to good people, but I am here to say that the Bible seems to give us an indication that although bad things are happening to us, it does not mean that God is absent or that he is out of control or that things are out of his control. God is using every circumstance in our life for our good. Paul tells us this in Romans 8, 28. We know that for all those who love God, he works all things for good according to his purposes. So that doesn't mean that all things are good. It doesn't mean, it doesn't say all things are good. It says all things work for good. That means even the bad things that happen, even the hardships that we face or the trials that we endure, they may not seem good at the time, but God is using them to produce good. God has ultimate and complete control over all things. We see this reflected in the birth of his son, Jesus. Do you know that God is in control of your life? There may be some of us sitting here tonight, and it seems like life is, is gone awry. Life has gone bad. Life is spiraling out of control, and I don't know how to fix it, and how in the world could God be present in this? Do you know that God is good? Are you convinced, based on your reading of the Scripture, that God is going to work all things for good? Perhaps Joseph didn't see it at the time. Perhaps as he's sitting in the jail cell, he has no idea how God is going to work this for good. But guess what? We, as beneficiaries of being removed, seeing it from a different perspective, we see exactly what God was doing. God was putting him in position to become a big, powerful ruler in Egypt and save thousands of lives by providing food during the famine. Now, it's easy for us to get upset or disappointed with God when life is hard and it seems like he's not there, but I promise you, I promise you, I promise you, God is in control. He's working all things for your good. 
In the birth of Jesus, we see the perfect control of God. But lastly, third thing. In the birth of Jesus, we see the overwhelming humility of God. The overwhelming humility of God. Look at verses 6 and 7 again. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. Jesus, as we commonly know, was, was not born in a palace. There was no big earthly party thrown for Jesus at his arrival. He was born among the animals. We have fancy cribs and bassinets and all kinds of soft blankets that we like to place our newborns in. Jesus was placed in the feeding trough of an animal. Uh, Just last week, Tyson and Anna Lott gave Samantha and I this book. It's called The Storm That Stopped. And as you can tell, it's it's a kid's book, and uh, it's it's good for young kids, but uh, I also was moved by it. But it's basically the story of when Jesus is on the Sea of Galilee with his disciples and a storm comes and Jesus is sleeping in the storm and and they're freaking out and they're thinking that they're all going to die. And so they wake Jesus up and they say, Jesus, save us, save us, save us. And as we all know, Jesus speaks and he says, be still. And, And the creation obeys him. And so this story is making a point, and I, want, I just want to read two pages to you. It says, this is what Jesus wanted to teach them. He wanted to teach them who he really is. The disciples already knew a lot about God from his special book. They knew that God made everything. He made the world. He made the sun and the moon and the stars. He made the sea and the wind as well. They knew that only God can tell the sea what to do. That only God can tell the wind when to blow or the waves when to crash. Only God can do these things. But the disciples had just seen Jesus do the same things God can do. So what is the answer to their question, who is Jesus? The last page says, Jesus is God. The whole point of the story is that we we need to understand that Jesus is God. Nothing has changed from Luke 2 to when this story takes place. It doesn't matter that Jesus was a full-grown adult versus a little infant baby. Jesus is God. And we know from other portions of the Bible that, that Jesus was actively involved in creation. John chapter 1 tells us that without him was not anything made that was made. And so we know that Jesus was actively involved in creation itself. Jesus is God. And Jesus had every right when he was born as a human just like you and just like me for the earth to throw him the biggest party for all the rocks and the trees and the animals to bow to him as their creator. But he didn't. Rather, he was born among the animals, laid in a manger, and without a home. There was no place for them in the inn. Perhaps that's 
a foreshadowing of, of multiple things. Jesus said, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. The, entire, the entirety of Jesus' life, he was without a home. And for many of us, for many people in the world, perhaps we have been just like the innkeeper, and we've had no room to let Jesus in. Our hearts are so filled with all the other things of the world that we don't have room for Jesus. But Jesus, being God, was born in the most humble circumstances. It can never be said that when God showed up, became part of his own creation, that he did it with only the finest of things, that he was extravagant in showing off his riches and his wealth and who he was. You see, Jesus became one of us in the most humble way imaginable to show you and me that he came to serve us. He came to be humble to show us what it means to be served. Jesus came to serve you and me. Jesus didn't show up with a parade, with a, with a party, with, with all of the hosts of, of the earth proclaiming who he was. Now, there was an angel party that you read right after this. The angels are proclaiming who he is. They're telling shepherds. But the earth had no room for Jesus. The earth had made no room for Jesus. But what we see in the birth of Jesus is, is a, a couple things about God. God is perfect in his timing. When God is going to act, when God is going to do something, his timing will always be perfect. It will never be a minute too soon. It will never be a minute too late. God has shown his complete control over his whole creation. There's no random circumstances that are leading to the birth of Jesus. There's no randomness to any of it. It is complete control by the God of the universe, orchestrating all things exactly how he wants them so that they will take place exactly when he wants them. But he also displays to us his overwhelming humility. Just in the way that he brings his son into the world. No extravagance, just lowly among the, the animals. And as I thought about this passage and as I thought about these, these things that we see about God, is just reminded that this, this is a God that is worth trusting. This is a God that is worth following. This is a God that is worth worshiping. This is a God that is worth giving up everything else. As Josh said, these two young men were baptized this morning. And that is them declaring to all of you and to everyone watching that the old self is, is gone. And what God has done is created a new person. And now, for the rest of their lives, and it should be for the rest of our lives, should be worshiping this God 
who has shown us how awesome he is just in this short clip of the birth of his son. But God's been showing us that throughout all of history, throughout all of the Old Testament, throughout all the rest of the New Testament, throughout all of our lives as Christians who are seeing God at work in the world presently, we are seeing all of these things to be true about God. He is absolutely worth giving up everything to have him. Are you willing to give up everything for him? Do you see him as worth everything? That's the question we have to ask ourselves. Let's think about that as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper. God, we thank you for the birth of Jesus And we thank you that in it, we see so many amazing things about you. God, we see that you are perfect in your timing. Not one thing is going to happen a moment too soon or a moment too late. God, we thank you that we have seen your perfect control over all things. Nothing happens that is outside of your control. And God, we see that you are humble. Despite knowing all things, despite creating all things, despite sustaining all things, you are most humble, more humble than all of us. God, we we see that you are a God that is worthy of everything we have to give. And I pray, God, that we would be willing to give up all to have you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.